0: This is R. J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair number 373 October the thirtieth, 1996. And I have with me as usual Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin and Mark Rushdooney. Before proceeding with our discussion this evening, I'd like to pass on to you something that uh, calls for your cooperation. We have had suggestions about a somewhat different format. One thing uh, that was requested that we do more book reviews, and we're going to do that this evening. Another, that we give you the opportunity to send in questions that are not hour long discussion material, but a question, whether it's about anything current or biblical or theological, that can be answered, let us say, in five or ten minutes. Uh, So, please, if this meets with your approval, and it does with some of you, we know, do send in those questions. If you have any other ideas about what you'd like us to do on these easy chairs, let us know. We are here to try to help you In any way, we can, and at the same time, promote a particular faith and perspective. Well, before beginning tonight with some books, I'd like to read something to you that is totally unrelated to anything I'm going to say for the rest of the evening, but it really startled me when I read it earlier today. It comes from Art and Antiques, A magazine, November 1996, and this is the item. Until his death in 1993, A.K. Miller and his wife lived in a farmhouse in East Orange, Vermont, without plumbing or electricity. On her deathbed earlier this year, Mrs. Miller told a neighbor to check under the floorboards state-appointed estate administrators found $800,000 in gold bullion stashed there. They also found in several dilapidated barns on the property a collection of 45 vintage motor cars, which Christie's auctioned off on the premises this past September 7 and 8. The biggest seller, a circa 1920 Stutz Bearcat, sold for $173,000. Proceeds from the $2.2 million sale, that's just for the automobiles, will go toward paying many years back taxes, unquote. <laughs> that really baffles me. Imagine living in a cold, isolated farmhouse in Vermont, without plumbing without electricity and having all that wealth I don't know how to account for it (laughs) but they'll find no Stutz Bearcats in any building on our premises when I die (laughs) or any money under the floorboards.
1: the yuppies call that deferred gratification but it sounds like they (laughs) deferred it to the extreme yes (laughs) Well,
0: some interesting things have been happening in the last few years in the field of biblical studies that we hear too little about. Now, with the Enlightenment, the hostility to the Bible and to the New Testament became very vocal. Some of the earliest critics attacked the Old Testament and the New Testament equally. Behind this, there was a veiled hatred. The attack on the Old Testament and uh, treating it as a collection of myths and the same with the New was a part of the hostility to the Jews of Europe. Then the attack on the New Testament was a part of the increasing hostility to Christianity on the part of the Enlightenment. One scholar of the last century went so far as to say that the idea that Jesus had ever lived uh, was a myth. There was no such person as Jesus. Jesus. The whole of the New Testament was a collection of uh, inventions and myths, fables, embodying supposedly a lot of uh, things from other religions. One person wrote about supposedly 27 or more crucified Christ in other religions, all of which was nonsense. Well, This kind of thinking was very prevalent in the universities, beginning in Germany but spreading elsewhere. In fact, a great deal of the cynicism began with the deists in England and spread to the continent and later concentrated on biblical studies in Germany. When I was a seminary student... The J.E.D.P. hypothesis was, of course, dominant and still is in most seminaries in the United States and abroad. According to this thesis, the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, really are a compilation of four different strands spread out over a period of perhaps a thousand years. And the redactors took these four strands and wove them together. Since then, of course, they have insisted that these four strands were made up of many more strands. So it's become an endless thing. In fact, uh, at least one prominent professor required every student to go through the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and with different colors of crayon, mark each verse, whether it belonged to J, E, D, P, and some belonged in part to all four. So that supposedly a single sentence or a single verse in the Pentateuch was just picked up out of four different documents over a period of about a thousand years. Well, of course, the whole idea is ridiculous. There is no such expert textual criticism. We know that uh, Shakespeare had collaborators in some of his plays, Men with a very different style of writing, dramatists, all of them. Nobody can go through the plays we vaguely know had other collaborators and say, this line is Shakespeare's and this is not. Or this speech is authentic Shakespeare and this one Involves Fletcher or somebody else. They cannot do it. But supposedly they can do it with near infallibility where the Bible is concerned, which makes clear how false the whole premise is. I recall years and years ago when I was a student reading one account by I believe, a British scholar of note, published in the Hibbert Journal, which said that uh, there had been no Jesus. The whole of it was made whole cloth when Stephen was martyred and they wove tales around Stephen and made him ultimately the Jesus and the Savior. Well, this kind of thinking has captured all the mainline Protestant churches and it has conquered Eastern Orthodox churches and, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, which back in the 50s and, and, it's, and through its uh, Pontifical Institute for Biblical Studies made clear as a starting point that the first 11 chapters of Genesis were not historical, so that what Pope John Paul II recently stated, namely that uh, Darwin is right and evolution is true, is simply a logical development of something that began in the 50s. But certain things have been happening that uh, you won't hear too much about. One of our staff members, David Estrada, in Spain, together with William White, Jr., in 1978, through Thomas Nelson, published the book, The First New Testament. And the book was a very, very important one because... What they found was that as scholars had begun to examine a a few little strands of old manuscripts, particularly O'Callaghan, his research, they found that the style of writing The script used, the paper and more, indicated a very early date because it was during the first century that there were changes in writing and in production of books. So instead of these scraps being ancient, uh... Forgeries coming from the end of the first century or inventions, they came from the New Testament era at the time of the resurrection and shortly thereafter. This meant that the fragments that O'Callaghan uh, studied and which Estrada and White wrote about had to have been written shortly after the resurrection. They had to have been very, very clearly eyewitness accounts, so that uh, the old attitude was no longer tenable. Of course, uh Callahan located a number of these fragments that were here and there in Museums that had never been evaluated. But the attitude of scholars towards O'Callaghan was as though he had ceased to be a scholar, as though he had committed some kind of forgery. And so they insisted on uh, sweeping the results under the carpet. Well, these scrolls that he deals with in this book were written in a style that at that time, A.D. 50 to 70, was already past its prime. So by the providence of God, there was a stylistic change then. So everything about these manuscripts indicates that, They are extremely early. Well, now along comes another work, a very important one, just published in uh, 1996, published, in this case, by Doubleday, written by Karsten Peter Thied, T-H-I-E-D-E, a German scholar, and Matthew Doncona, an English editor, and the title, Eyewitness to Jesus, Amazing New Manuscript Evidence About the Origin of the Gospels. The uh, blurb on the book cover begins by saying, Christmas Eve 1994 would have come and gone like any other had it not been for three tiny papyrus fragments discussed in the Times of London's sensational front-page story. The avalanche of letters to the editor jarred the world into realizing that Matthew Doncona's story was as big as the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The flood of calls received by Dr. Carsten Peter Thede, the scholar behind the story, And the international controversy that spread like wildfire give us an inkling as to why the Magdalene papyrus has embroiled Christianity in a high stakes tug of war over the Bible. And Theed and Dancona boldly tell the story of two scholars a century apart who stumbled on the oldest known remains of the New Testament. Hard evidence that St. Matthew's Gospel is the account of an eyewitness to Jesus. Well, you can imagine uh, how this upset the whole theological establishment. And the scholars were very, very much upset. Upset with these two men, upset with their... Conclusions and determined to, well, ridicule them out of existence although they could come up with no hard evidence. The gist of this was that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses shortly after the events they described. Anyone who has read the Gospels knows from a reading of them that, uh, end of Acts as well, end of Revelation, that they assume that Jerusalem is still standing. It was destroyed in the war of 66 A.D. They give very specific and precise locations as to where this or that was. Well, the manuscript evidence confirms the authenticity of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to say from an historical point of view. Now, the two scholars who wrote this book are not orthodox, unlike uh, Estrada and White. In the latter part, Uh, They make qualifications about the Orthodox faith, which indicates that they're not a party to the same theology as Estrada and White. But although this book has been featured by a book club in the United States, it has not gotten much in the way of reviews. And I suspect, like Estrada and White's book, it will be quietly forgotten as quickly as they can forget it because they do not like the implications of it. It tells us that the Gospels are exactly what they claim to be, accurate eyewitness accounts of the events they describe. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens because this kind of evidence is only going to mount up. It is interesting that in both cases, the evidence was fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament discovered in the last century in one instance but they weren't interested in pursuing anything that would call attention to them and their authenticity, apparently. So, at the time when uh, Christians are too ready to surrender this and that to the opposition, here we have a remarkable account in these two books that tells us the Gospels are what they say they are. Any questions or comments
2: about that? I think we need to understand that those people that employ that historical critical method have a moral problem, not basically an intellectual problem. They're always saying, well, we can't accept the evidence, you know, because we're uh, intellectually unconvinced. Well, of course, that's not true according to Romans chapter 1. The... uh, truth of God and his existence is impressed on the very frame of man's being, as, as Van Til would say. The problem is that they don't want to submit themselves to the truth, and therefore they invent theories just as Charles Darwin, another evolutionist, invented that theory, which has nothing to do with evidence, it has to do with presuppositions, and that's exactly the problem. I recommend to Gerhard Mayer's book, The End of the Historical Critical Method which demonstrates this truth, that if you begin with the presuppositions of the historical critical method, you're going to end with an evisceration of the entire Bible. And therefore, it's not even appropriate to deal with the inspired Word of God in that way. Yes. uh,
0: Sometime back, I called attention to the Death of God School of Theology and their presupposition. They didn't care whether there is a God or not, that question for them was irrelevant. Their whole point was, as far as we are concerned, God is dead for us. We are not interested in him. So as far as our modern world, our perspective on life, he is dead. We could not be less interested in him. So, this is the same attitude that the critics of the Bible manifest. It cannot be true because for us it is not true. Therefore, we will not consider the evidence.
1: One of their evidences when they get to the prophets that they, they have to take the, the prophets and they have to date them much later than what scripture would. It says, well, this foretells something specific that happened so obviously we have to date it after the prophecy was fulfilled. Because there's no
2: such such
0: thing as prophecy, because there were some prophecies that actually prophesied the name
2: of a king hundreds of years before the king reigned. That's right. Well, they want to approach the scriptures as though the scriptures are like any other book. And a man who did an excellent job refuting that idea was Edward F. Hills in his book, Believing Bible Study, which I don't think is still in print, but... Now, he demonstrated that if the Bible is in fact the Word of God, as we Christians believe it is, we cannot approach the Word of God as we would approach the Word of man. It certainly is written in human words and is uh, susceptible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, illumination of the spirit to understanding, but nonetheless it is the very inspired and infallible Word of God it can't be treated uh, as as other human literatures as human literature merely human literature is treated for it is in fact the Word of God but course, that's precisely what happens in the case of uh, the the uh, so-called higher critics and also the, the uh, espousers of the so-called lower criticism too, textual criticism.
1: Well, I just uh, wanted to delve for a moment into the, the people who do this criticism. Uh, are these uh, professors at theological seminaries or universities that uh, write papers and so forth and uh, pass judgment on uh,
2: whether or not uh, uh, the Bible is true. Yes, yes, in fact, there's a group here in California, Rush, that you're aware of. It's the so-called Jesus Seminar. The group of scholars, mostly so-called New Testament scholars. We had an article in the Chalcedon Report here a few months ago dealing with one of them, Marcus Borg, who essentially deny the existence of the Lord Jesus. Most of them do. He's a mythical figure and all that sort of thing. Very well-reputed scholars. And I think annually they have a meeting, and it's carried, their meeting, and the results are carried by newspapers all over the world. There are great pronouncements by these men on um, the historical nature of Christianity and the fact that Jesus Christ really never existed. Or if he did, he certainly was not the Son of God. But yeah, that's... Who pays them? Yeah, that's a good question. They're well endowed. Lots of money behind them. But you know what is really annoying, Douglas? That's a good point. What's really annoying is that there are Bible-believing Christians in certain denominations that send money to the denominations, and there are denominational seminaries. There are denominational seminaries that support those uh, professors, and uh, we understand how liberals would naturally support liberals, but why would conservatives want to pay the salary of these theologians? Uh, but that's precisely what happens in the mainline denominations. There are Christian people who stay there, put their money in the denomination. The denomination takes a slice of that money and gives it to these people. Here is an interesting
0: statement, and uh, the books are both rich in uh, comments like this. This is from uh, Eyewitness to Jesus about Matthew, or Mark. No, it's about Matthew, but he says about Mark. And I quote, St. Mark, slightly more interested in linguistic subtleties than the other gospel authors. From time to time, he uses Latin, Greek, and Aramaic technical terms, always with translation, offers an illuminating snippet of information in 726. The Greek text means, And the woman was Greek-speaking. Thus, St. Mark informs us almost in passing that our ensuing conversation with Jesus was conducted in Greek. A similar usage appears in St. Mark 1213 to 17 the incident of Jesus and the Pharisees debating the tribute to Caesar. The German archaeologist and New Testament scholar Benedict Schwank demonstrated some time ago that this conversation must have been conducted in Greek. Now, that's very interesting. We don't appreciate the fact that in that part of the world, uh, then and today, because there are so many cross-currents of peoples and uh, differing languages for business, most people speak more than one language so that it was not uncommon for people in Palestine then to speak three languages and possibly more with equal fluency. Uh, my father, I believe, uh, knew five languages, and it was not unique for him. It made it a bit difficult for me as a child because when my folks did not want me to know what they were talking about, they'd switch to one of these other languages, whereas I had only two, Armenian and English. Well, if the Christian community that claims to believe the Bible from cover to cover does not follow through on the leads these men are providing, they will be answerable to God. They have not followed through on uh, uh, David Estrada and White's book. At the time, I gave away about 20 copies to various scholars. Never heard a reaction from any. But uh, this one, eyewitness to Jesus, I hope will get a better reception. In fact, the other book needs also to be brought back into print. I wish we had the money to bring back into print some of the very, very important works that are beginning to disappear. So, I urge you to try to get eyewitness to Jesus. It's a bit technical at points, but it is very important reading, and anyone who has an interest in Christian scholarship by all means should get and read Eyewitness to Jesus. Another book that I'd like to have us consider is an important one published in, I believe, 1991, Signs of the Times, Deconstruction and the Fall of Paul DeMan," written by David Lehman. Paul Man was a scholar who Was originally in Belgium, Belgium, and then brought over to a major American university. He was the father, with Derrida, of deconstructionism. Deconstructionism, in effect, says there is no meaning. The idea of meaning is irrational. And therefore, to insist on meaning is uh, really, uh, absurd. When you read something, make up your own meaning. So you can read, uh, Shakespeare and make him mean something that is totally contemporary. Their, uh, premise is that meaning is fascist. Meaning is fascist. Why? Well, meaning implies that there is an overall governing truth, an overall governing meaning. Well, if you deny God, you are going to say the universe is meaningless and therefore you invent your own meaning. Uh, Paul D. Man was himself Uh, Nazi who concealed his background, very definitely anti-Jewish, and yet after his death and the exposure of what he was, scholars were busy making excuses for him. Now, before we go into deconstruction and demand, I'd like to call attention to an article also in Art and Antiques about Jasper Johns, an American iconoclast whose art is deconstructionist. Now he doesn't use that term but it is a denial of meaning. Everything in his art is in contempt of meaning. In fact, uh his idea is to make people have a sense of life and I quote you may have to choose how to respond and you may respond in a limited way but you have been aware that you are alive unquote uh, I've never been unaware that I'm alive <laughs> uh, and, and that's the kind of gobbledygook that uh, follows uh, he goes beyond Jackson Pollock, who said, look, any paint mark is okay. In other words, it's art. So what Jasper Johns has done is to work to create an art that is deconstructionist, that works against the idea of meaning, of an overall truth, of any connection between reality which is denied and, and the art. Uh, one artist says about uh, Jasper Johns, we sense there's a code there that we might unravel if only we look long enough. Among the kinds of art that Jasper Johns has produced has been the skin prints in which he coats his body with oil and lies down on paper. These are highly prized work of art.
1: <laughs> 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 you didn't oh. know you
0: could be a great artist, did you? He's and uh, one... Uh, Scholar Elizabeth Murray uh, praises him, and I quote, as at a D as a deep doubter who raised questions on every level. In other words, you're profound nowadays if you question everything, no matter how childishly
1: you do so. Every generation of university students has a certain percentage of campus windbags who spew this irrational garbage and I don't care what generation it is, uh, all you have to do is walk around any campus and you hear these people soapboxing making these irrational statements and I think the guy that that parodied this the the best was that uh, comedian uh, I can't remember his name, uh, uh, Professor Irwin Corey you know he'd start off in these long rambling dissertations and wind up nowhere I mean it was a verbal Winchester mystery mansion he just, you know and it was just a perfect uh, parody of these campus windbags who launch on these uh, uh, senseless, irrational, useless, intellectually useless dissertations
0: well it is almost impossible to go to a college and university today and escape the influence of deconstruction. That's right. Let me quote from uh, David Lehman, the author, on page 52. Uh, he's writing about uh, the MLA, the Modern Language Association, which, when I was a student, was a very scholarly organization. Their papers on the great uh, writers, the poets and all, were gems of careful research, and uh, no paper ever got printed or was delivered by them that wasn't on a very high level. All right. But listen to this, and I quote, It is a commonplace wisdom among job seekers at MLA conventions that, as one told me at a recent gathering, If you want to make it in the criticism racket, you have to be a deconstructionist or a Marxist or a feminist. That's right. Otherwise, you don't stand a chance. You're not taken seriously. You're on the fringe. It doesn't matter what you know or don't know. That's right. What counts is your theoretical approach. And that means knowing the jargon and who's in and who's out. His companion agreed, adding ominously, that to be a white male in academia today is like being a leper in the Middle Ages. Then the two went off to attend a session on the Muse of Masturbation. There would be papers on clitoral imagery and masturbation in Emily Dickinson, something called clitoral hermeneutics, is in, and on de-sublimating the male sublime autoerotics and erotics and corporal violence in Melville and William Burroughs. I asked another conventioner to help me dis- decipher uh, clitoral hermeneutics. I said that I could grasp the clitoral part of the equation, but the implications for hermeneutics. That is, the interpretation of texts struck me as elusive. My informative and affably non-doctrinary Yale graduate told me that a syllabus for this adventure in critical methodology is ovarian hermeneutics. <laughs> it is, she said, championed by those feminists who want to valorize the clitoris rather than the vagina as a binary opposition of sexual discourse. Other feminists, my guide explained, deride the concept as pseudo-phallocentric, since an emphasis on the clitoris might arouse old bugbears, such as the view of the clitoris as an inadequate penis. I still wasn't sure what any of this had to do with literary criticism or the teaching profession, but took it on faith that the speaker in the conference hall was making some sort of theoretic, a theoretical statement when she declared that Emily Dickinson's poetic style was literal. Gender now amounts to a formal dimension of a work of art. Or so I gathered in the corridors of the MLA convention. Unquote.
1: You almost coined a new term there. Uh, uh. Theoroticism. Yeah, right? I heard that. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing.
2: <laughs> write that one down. Well. Does anybody listen to these people outside of the well, campus it's, it's, crowd? I mean. This is so pervasive.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, You know, uh, Christians are mistaken who think that it's in the science departments uh, biology and so forth that there's the greatest undermining of Christianity although certainly it is there with Darwinism it's, today it's in the humanities departments I've been in them before and uh, those people are, are fully self-conscious um, epistemologically self-conscious perverts who want to destroy language mm-hmm. who want to destroy God who want to destroy everything that mm-hmm. is good and right and proper and especially anything that is biblical
1: Yeah, well, who listens to them outside the internet? Well,
2: they do. Uh, Not only are they holding
0: well-attended conventions and every job seeker has to go and pick up the language, but they are influencing other areas of thought. In the world of the media, most of them would not know some of the terminology that is used by the deconstructionists, but the idea of deconstruction has seeked throughout the media community. They do not believe there is an overall meaning. They do not believe that there is a right and wrong. It's all
2: now relative. And that's the basic premise of deconstruction. Rush, it should not be lost on our listeners, too, that almost every one of those deconstructionists uh, expresses indebtedness to Friedrich Nietzsche. They tend to be very Nietzschean. Derrida says it plainly. Yes.
0: And Nietzsche said, uh, very often a lie is more valuable and more useful than the truth. The person who told David Lehman that uh, meaning is fascist uh, went on to explain the logic of his position. Let me uh, read. We inhabit, he said, an indeterminate universe. That is, there is no fixed character or meaning. Everything is mediated entirely through language. The only way we can know anything is by using words, and the words of any discourse constantly shift their meaning. Everything depends on interpretation, and no interpretation is more correct than any other." Now, if you want a practical example of this kind of thing, Look at the world of business. There's no integrity, no honesty, increasingly in the newer circles. And older men who've been in business for some time are just baffled by the new world they're facing. That's right.
1: Well, legal profession is the same thing. Attorneys used to be able to make verbal commitments to one another. Now they can't trust each other. They have to get even among attorneys. They have to get uh,
2: agreements in writing. When this, when this is pointed out to Derrida and others, that it's, this is self-defeating. What does this do to their own writing? Mm-hmm. They acknowledge that. They say, yeah. we're down on the old dirty abyss of non-meaning and we want to drag everybody else down with us. That's mm-hmm. essentially their idea. Well, listen to this sentence from Lehman. I quote,
0: Meaning is delusory, and the deconstructionist refuses to be taken in. Unquote. There is no truth. There is no meaning. Everything is totally relative. And so you live in a world that uh, is devoid of any character, any meaning.
1: How do they justify publishing books if there's no meaning? They're trying
2: to get the rest of us to wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they—they're they, very elitist. They are the enlightened, and those of you that still believe that there's meaning—that objective meaning—attaching to text, you're just—it's um, the old way of thinking. You know, it's very faddish. It's really perverse. Here is an interesting
0: statement, again from Layman. In 1992 the incoming president of the Modern Language Association will be, this was written in 91, Houston A. Baker of the University of Pennsylvania, whose most famous pronouncement is that there is no difference. Choosing between Virginia Woolf and Pearl Buck, between high literature and the middlebrow sort, is no different from choosing between a hoagie and a Pizza. Baker told a New York Times reporter, I am one whose career is dedicated to the day when we have a disappearance of those standards, unquote. Yes. Well, this tells you what the public schools are about. That's right. They're working against standards and for their destruction. So all around us we see the world of destruction, deconstruction.
2: Perhaps you can think of some from your experience. A prime example of that is uh, the assault on the literary canon, that there is an established canon of books in, let's say, in British-American literature that people should read, but some will say um, graffiti is just as good as Shakespeare. Yes. And um, there is no canon. They say that was um, imposed by white Anglo-Saxon-Protestant uh, males uh, to enslave everybody else. One person actually
0: went so far as to say the Bible of our times is written on toilet walls. In other words, graffiti is the truth of our time if you want to have talk about truth.
2: Go ahead. Well, our Supreme Court's been deconstructionist oh, over yes. this century. Yes.
0: Yes, it's Saying there is no objective meaning in the Constitution, and it is exactly what we say it is.
1: I guess that's the. Uh, this is the where the outcome-based education came from.
2: Yes. Well, it's it's the one of the final stages of of apostasy, when men deny God. Where is the end? The end isn't is lack of any meaning whatsoever. Rushes you've. Was it in, um By One Standard, you talked about Van Til and uh, going into the abyss. What does he call it? The, um, you know what I'm talking integration about. In the the integration into the void. Integration into the void and so forth. That's, this is, this is, we're living in the times of the, the, the culmination of this sort of ideational apostasy. This is where it leads. Well, the
0: other night I was waiting, I forget what, for what, and I had a little time and I didn't want to start uh studying something because I'd get too involved so I was flipping the TV and something struck me because it was a total lack of uh, common sense, of reality it wasn't in a real world it was assuming that anything and everything is possible and I realized how far from reality our so-called uh, realism on television is. Uh, realism means that evil is the truth and they will propagate any kind of evil idea and any kind of nonsense because everything is possible for them except God.
2: Well, what's generally called classical education is far from perfect but even that is being destroyed today Mm -hmm. Uh, the standards even of the so-called Greco-Roman classical education are being thrown aside in favor of this well we are seeing a loss of reality
0: increasingly Um, I, I think it's rather startling that so many many of our young people are out of touch with the real world their real world tends to be television. And uh, it seems to influence them more than the Bible, more than their parents. Going past a high school at lunchtime is an experience nowadays. It isn't the world
2: that we knew at one time. You know, Russ, they have all of these filters that insulate them from life. That's a very good point. Yes. Uh, TV is an artificial phenomenon. So much of the radio and music are artificial in the modern era are artificial phenomena that insulate them from reality. That's a very uh, good point. It's not only television and the films.
0: It's also liquor and drugs. know, yeah. The extent to which... Youth today, has no touch with reality, is becoming appalling. We are regularly given uh, statistics that seem to indicate the drug scene is a little better. <laughs> but then, two or three years down the road, we were told it was very bad back then, but now it's improving. What can we believe anymore? The truth means nothing to anybody.
2: You know, it's really seen, we're, we're taping this in the, in the political season, it's really seen in the political sphere, is it not, where the important thing is not substance, but perception, you know. Yes. Uh, reporters will speak that way. Well, the important thing is not the way it is, but the perception is this way, and the perception of what you said is this, um, because that's the way people people think and reason in terms of what they see, uh, and what goes on in their own minds, almost like Kant, you know, you, it's all up here. Everything, mm-hmm. all reality, is is between your two ears. Um, that seems to be the era in which we're living. It, it's very frightening, actually.
1: Every time I hear one of these guys on television, it's just as if there's a subtitle on there that says, "This individual is an overpaid windbag." I mean, that's the first thing that pops into my head, and you know yeah. go to another channel.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not worth your time.
2: That's right. If there's anything favorable, favorable at all about all of this is that I think that it's forcing or it should at least force Christians to wake up to the battle that we're facing uh, so that they won't be lulled to sleep anymore by just slight deviations. We have here a very serious, severe deviation from the faith. I mean, almost it's opposite. And uh, one hopes that Christians will will wake up and and enter the battle of pressing the crown rights of Christ in all areas of life.
0: Well, deconstruction has one goal, the death of meaning. And the death of meaning is really the death of life. Man is a meaning-oriented, God-created person. And if you uh, destroy meaning, you destroy life.
1: You also destroy sanity.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are seeing, uh,
1: sanity endangered. Well, it's why, uh, young people commit suicide. It's why, that's right. uh, people, uh, uh, are killing themselves with, uh, alcohol and food. Uh, they're they're looking for any kind of a uh, of a narcotic to free them from this insanity. Mm-hmm.
0: If you are alive and you're in God's universe, you can take a great deal of grief and trouble, horrors and survive because you know there is a basic and ultimate meaning that will override everything That's right. that Romans 8.28 is true that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose but uh, not so if there is no meaning then your life is going to be a long long flight from reality uh, because you can't face the world as it is And Proverbs 8, 36 is right, All they that hate me love death. And we are seeing the love of death increasingly manifest in our culture. And that's why we're going to win. That's right. We are the people of life. We are the people of victory. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So we can go through a great deal in the way of troubles but we are the survivors.
2: Our enemies are on the path of destruction and we have the promises of God. That's the difference. I mean, they engage in self-destructive thinking and self-destructive behavior. But Rush, as you indicated, the future is bright for Christians because we will, uh, we will outlive them and our covenant seed will outlive them. Well,
0: our time is nearly over, but let me say this. I think it's uh, ironic and fitting that we who are the Christian Reconstructionists now have so obvious an enemy, the Deconstructionists. That's right. And the term Deconstruction is a combination, self-consciously, of two words, destruction and construction. So, they are Deconstructionists. What has been constructed, they are going to destroy. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. And don't forget, if you have uh, questions, please send them to us. Thank you, and God bless you.